Hi, I'm Chris Negline, one of the co-hosts of the Nerd Trepidants podcast, and I'm here with Ken Height, role-playing game entrepreneur. Uh, we had him last year and had a really fabulous interview, and if you want to know more about Ken's past and how he got into the games and how he got to where he is now, we suggest you check that interview out. This year, we're going to get a little bit more into the industry itself, as well as some of the great projects he's working on right now. But... Um, if you want to do a quick recap. Quick recap, I've been a tabletop uh, game designer, uh, well, I guess technically since I got my first copy of the DMG, or even before that, but I've been a professional tabletop game designer since 93, 94, when I did Secret Societies for Nephilim and GURPS Alternate Earths for Steve Jackson, and then went into it full-time around 96, 97, and have done it pretty much ever since. I've done two Star Trek games back-to-back for Last Unicorn Games and Decipher, and now I am a staff designer pretty much at Pelgrane Press, so I did Trail of Cthulhu for them and Knights Black Agents uh, for them, and then the Dracula dossier, which just dropped uh, last October uh, for them, and now I'm, I'm working on ever more wonderful projects for Pelgrane, and every now and again uh, helping out someone with a, a Kickstarter stretch goal or something. But most of my, most of my big uh, uh, prestige stuff is Pelgrane products now. And just to recap the, the latest project he mentioned, uh, basically is James Bond meets Dracula. And I'm actually oversimplifying it. Or right Jason here. Bourne meets Dracula. It's it's sort yeah. of post-Bond because you're burned spies. You don't have the resources of uh, MI6 or whatever to fall back on. You've just got the contacts you've made over your career of espionage and you're hunting a unknown conspiracy of vampires. You don't know what kind of vampires they are. Do they fear garlic? Do they fear crosses? Do they hate silver? Do they hate... Uh, sunlight. You don't know what the vampires' power are. You just know vampires exist. You've seen evidence of these supernatural monster killers, and maybe they were who, who was hiring you for your last five or six jobs. So you're in already too deep, and you have to hunt down the vampires because the other side of that is they know that you know, and they're definitely hunting you. So it's hunter be hunted, killer be killed. But uh, yeah, Jason Bourne versus Dracula is the elevator pitch for it because I think people understand both of those halves. So to sum up. If that doesn't make you want to go out and check that book out now, what's wrong with you? Exactly. I'm, I'm just saying. Knights Black Agents. <laughs> so uh, just a couple of weeks before you know, this interview happened, there's been some really big news yeah. coming down for D&D 5th edition. And it's not we're not talking about D&D, but what this really means for what it could do for the industry, people getting in, what it means for the professionals and the professionals' professionals. Um, and the big thing is the SRD got released. And there's a new thing, not to be confused with the book of the same name, the Dungeon Master's Guide, where... Guild. Guild. Thank you. Right. Guild, where you basically can do writing in Watsi's playground of Forgotten Realms for their game products, but it comes with some balances, checks and balances, and also a hefty kind of cut. So, if you want to explain it a little bit? Well, the SRD, for people who aren't following along, is the system resource document. That's, if you have an open source, whether it's an open source code or an open source role-playing game, there's a system resource document that is whatever you're allowed to use for free. And WotC just released the system resource document for 5th edition. They'd obviously released one for 3rd edition back when they made that, uh, uh, when they made the D20 license and they made the initial uh, open gaming license. And so they released a system resource document for 3 and then for 3.5, which eventually became Pathfinder. And now they have released one for 5.0. So we are now once more potentially at the beginning of a bubble 
of people publishing second party and third party uh, products that are compatible with Dungeons and Dragons in one sense or another. The wrinkle in this particular iteration of, of this movie, which we've all seen before, is that they have simultaneously opened up a space in the drive-through RPG site called the Dungeon Masters Guild, where you can publish PDFs uh, that will have. Your, 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 let me let me go back. The SRD is a limited subset of what's available in Fifth Edition, right? It's not all the spells, it's not all of the feats, it's not all of the monsters. So it's it's like the SRD was for Third Edition. With the Dungeon Masters Guild, you can use everything from Fifth Edition, and you can set it in the Forgotten Realms, which is obviously the best-selling, most popular D&D setting ever, and therefore has an argument of being the best-selling, most popular role-playing setting ever. So you are able, for a 15% additional VIG on top of the 35% that you pay as a publisher through DriveThru anyway, to write third-party game material that's set in the Forgotten Realms and uses material from the Forgotten Realms and uses all of the other material from 5th edition. So you can't use Mind Flayers in a open game license product, but you can write a book about Mind Flayers in the Dungeon Master's Guild. And that's what you're paying your 15% extra for, is access to Mind Flayers and Beholders and all the other, and Bigby's uh, Clutching Hand and Mordekainen's, uh, whatever the thing is that Mordekainen has. But you're paying for all of that evocative material and all the other spells and all the other feats that you can't use with the SRD, you can use all of those in a Dungeon Master's Guild product. And you can then, as an extra bonus, set that product in the Forgotten Realms. And then there are wrinkles upon wrinkles, because what you cannot do yet in the Dungeon Master's Guild is provide another campaign world to play in. So if I wanted to make a campaign world, you know, if I wanted to take, take uh, Keylong, which I did for Lamentations of the Flame Princess, and reskin it for 5th edition... Well, first of all, I couldn't do that because James Raggy owns it. But second of all, um, I could not do that in the DMs Guild because the DMs Guild is only Forgotten Realms. That has to be the world. It's either world neutral or Forgotten Realms. So as a result, what they don't want is for someone to come along and do uh, worlds that will compete with Forgotten Realms for attention until they have sort of a handle on what to release. Because Mike Merles has said... Yes, we're going to open up more settings than Forgotten Realms eventually. And he's already said things like uh, um, Alcadim is part of the Forgotten Realms. Mm -hmm. Spelljammer is part of the Forgotten Realms. If it ever had a Forgotten Realms logo on the back of it, apparently it's part of Forgotten Realms. That would make Core Tour, right? Right, yeah, I, I assume so. Um, I'm not. I'm in no wise the expert on third-tier on third D&D settings. But a lot of that stuff is Forgotten Realms or Forgotten Realms compatible. And so that is already open. But, for example, Ravenloft is not. Mm -hmm. But that's because they've just released the Ravenloft uh, campaign books, and so they don't want to step on their own marketing tail. But once those have run their course, I strongly suspect in a year or two, yeah, you'll get to do Ravenloft material. And the question is, are you ever going to get to do your own game world in which you can have mind flares and beholders? Because that, I think, is where a lot of people sort of the sweet spot that a lot of people would like to do. Uh, and uh, that, I think, is an interesting set of questions, and I'm not even sure if Wizards knows the answer to that yet. They're sort of still trying to see what's happened. At the current moment, you still can't search by publisher in the DMs Guild. All the publishers are listed as DMs Guild, which is odd. <laughs> uh, Cobalt Press, for example, has products in the DMs Guild. And you might say, well, they're a trusted purveyor of wonderful D&D uh, &D products. 
why can't I just buy Cobalt, uh, uh, Cobalt Press? But you can't search on it. So there is a degree of navigational tools that I suspect have to go in, and they had to clarify the art license rules. So, for example, what you publish into the DMs Guild is theoretically public domain and anyone else can take stuff out of your thing and put it in their thing. And that includes the art, too? Well, that does not include the art. Okay. It looked like it included the art, and people were like, I don't know if I want to put art in here that can then be used by everyone. And Watsi clarified that. And I assume they'll clarify more and more as these edge cases begin to take shape. Now, I heard that they did provide a set of yeah, art you, you, you could you use. Yeah, you absolutely have Forgotten Realms art that you can use okay. in your book. And that's a standard thing whenever you license anything. When we did the Star Trek game, mm -hmm. they sent us over a big clutch of DVDs that had pre-approved art. So it was, normally if you do a picture of uh, Captain Kirk or Captain Sisko, you have to get image rights from William Shatner or the guy who played Captain Sisko, whose name escapes me because it's DS9, so who cares? But the, um, uh, <laughs> Avery Brooks. Anyway, um, but with the pre-approved art, those have already, the clearance has already been granted. So I suspect something similar was in their mind that will provide pre-approved art for a Forgotten Realms licensor, which you technically are. And uh, so that is just a standard thing that any licensed property does. Okay, so that was a good point because I already talked to somebody earlier today and they said, I want to do a project that has Death Yankee and Mind Flayers and all that. And when can I do that? When can I do that? You can do it right now if you want to set it in the Forgotten Realms. And the realms are huge, right? You just find some corner that no one has mapped. You say, here is my lost city of Gith Yankee and Mind Flayers. Knock yourself out. But you have to be able to walk from there to, you know, um, uh, uh, Sword Coast or wherever, right? You have to be able to get to the rest of the Forgotten Realms. It's part of the Forgotten Realms. And, you know, there's a lot of other things. You also can't, for example, release... Uh, Forgotten Realms product into the DMs Guild world that doesn't use 5th edition, right? You can't do 3rd edition. You can't do 2nd edition. You certainly can't do uh, Pathfinder or 13th Age or a, or a living competitor to 5th edition. So they want to keep it supporting the actual game they're trying to sell, which, again, that's totally reasonable. And only the sort of insanity that was the original OGL makes us think that it's not reasonable for someone to use that to control... Uh, licenses uh, for a property like that. So, and I, and again, I strongly suspect, and I know nothing from the horse's mouth, but I strongly suspect that as D&D moves forward through their pre-existing worlds and properties, you'll begin to see more stuff being opened, more boundaries being drawn for people who are trying to push edge cases or don't, or legitimately are confused. Mike has been all over Reddit and all over the internet answering questions. You go on Twitter and you read his Twitter stream and it's just non-stop answering questions from people who have, hey, Mike Morals, what happened? I don't understand. And, you know, he'll just be as polite and nice as he possibly can be in 140 on characters. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, he's the head designer. He's the, he's the king. Um, but uh, but there's just, you know, I think that the, the response sort of caught them off guard, which is odd, but, you know, whoever. Um, and so they're sort of, they feel like they're a half step behind, not because they're being jerks, but because they're legitimately a half step behind. And the excitement of people saying, oh my God, I can finally do something in the Forgotten Realms, has got them all, you know, giddy and excited and, and flooding the, the site with content. And that's part of the problem now is because there's so much stuff there already, since you can't sort by publisher or by creator, it's going to be very, very hard to tell, you know, do I want to buy this? Do I not want to buy this? These both seem sort of like identical Gith Yankee Beholder Town stories, but one of these is from an awesome guy who I love, and one of these is by some guy I've never heard of. So uh, it, it's going to be an interesting 
shakeout period. And I think we're going to know a lot more in even two months than we know now and a lot more in a year than we even think we can know now. So I think the only loophole I can think of at the moment is if somebody wanted to do a campaign, not world, but a campaign city setting of some sort. As long as you put it in the realms, I think that's cool. I think you can do that. And again, the other thing that they've said is that if what you do is you look at all of the elf books that people have done, you take them all, you dump them into your own massive elf book, mm-hmm. wizards will do a takedown. Because they they reserve the right just to yank you from the DM's guild for no reason. Again, because it's their, uh, their sandbox. Which I pity the fool who has to read everything in the DM's guild to look for violations of the spirit or letter of the license. That does not sound like my ideal job. But... Uh, but that intent is there. So if you're worried, oh, I don't want to publish it because someone will steal my great idea for halflings, then, you know, well, first of all, that may happen anyway because we live in a world where there are internet pirates. But on the other hand, if you're worried that there's going to be an ongoing process of poaching, mm-hmm. then uh, Wizards has said they're going to try and keep, a, keep that uh, out of the system. The flip-flip side of that is the Wizards has also said, though, by publishing stuff into the DM's guild, you are giving us the opportunity to use it in Wizards content. And so I don't know. I, I literally don't know because that was very far down in the list, and I was reading to find out if Ravenloft had been opened. Um, it's very far down the list, so I don't know if what that means is they have first option to license it from you, they have first option to buy it at their standard rate, or they're like, you put it in Forgotten Realms, therefore we own it. Thank you so much. You'll get your name in the book somewhere. So I don't know what their position is. They, and again, they may not know. And their policy may be uh, scaled depending on how many sales you've had on the site. And it may be scaled depending on whether or not you know they know you already. And it may be scaled depending on whether or not you've been a good citizen and not pirating other people's self-book. I mean, I'm not sure what their policy is. And again, I'm not super sure they know what their policy is yet. But it does say somewhere buried in the legalese that by putting stuff into the Dungeon Master's Guild, you are definitely giving WotC the ability to put stuff into their official content. So I don't know what their policy is going to be going forward on whether or not that means they will just uh, pay you a, a distributor's cut to reprint it or whether that means they will pay you a creator's cut to tear the one good feat you wrote out and put it in their book of really awesome feats that they do. So the sense I'm getting right now is, is for the professional side, it looks like it's getting closer to kind of a wait-and-see attitude for how things I, I think it, it, it depends on the publisher, because obviously if you were the first guy out of the gate in the old days with a D20 product, you made a lot of money. You did really, really well. And some of the things that where you probably have a less immediate investment in being the only person there, if, if you're the kind of guy who's like, I'm going to do... Uh, a hex map of this one forest in the Forgotten Realms, and I'm going to put all the spiders and illithids and get the Yankee in that I want, and you just do 50 of those, mm-hmm. you don't really care, necessarily. And uh, obviously, Kobold Press is on there, and Wolfgang Barr is a very smart guy and a very professional guy. And he's made the decision, it's better to be a first responder than it is to be a wait-and-see guy. I think uh, we're as diverse a, a bunch of creators as a bunch of identical 50-year-old doughy white guys can be, uh, and I think the responses are going to be all over the map from I'm never getting, I'm never touching that ever and my lawyer would kill me if I did to I'm already there now, why aren't you here? Look at all the money I could be making you know, or, or, or am making. And again, and again, I'm sure that Wolfgang 
did not release something into the into that space without having a pretty good idea how many cells he was going to get. And I think he's probably been pretty happy because traffic to the DM uh, Guild, from what I hear, has been really strong. And they've been and, and no one at Watsi has acted like, oh well, we knew that all along. They've all been acting like, what? People like the Forgotten Realms, which strikes me as odd. You'd think they would know if anyone would know. Yeah, to me, it seems like this is almost like this, you know, the the DM the DMG. Yeah, is almost like opening night for Fandango ticket sales when Star Wars came out. It's just, how did you not know that your servers were going to crash? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just one of those things where they, you know, they... And, you know, you hate to think that anyone's being cynical, but obviously, you guys crashed our servers is pretty good publicity for something you want to keep going for years and years. But on the other hand, you know, as the, as the, as the chairman of Coca-Cola said after the new Coke debacle, we're not that dumb and we're not that smart. <laughs> So speaking of the professionals, uh, there was an odd bit of news, and I wanted to get kind of your take on it. The Science Fiction Writers Association, which, you know, over decades and decades, game writing for video games and role-playing games has been kind of the ghetto of the ghetto when it comes to genre fiction. And, of course, nowadays things have changed. Things are different. A lot of mainstream writing and fiction and pop culture is now science fiction and fantasy, and it's getting to the point where we're just kind of looking at the literary crowd and saying, you're just jealous of our jetpack, right? And some of them are starting to nod their heads. So the Science Fiction Writing Association has created bylaws that are going to be voted on soon to allow game writers to be members of the Science Fiction Writing Association, which means they get access to, uh, there's an emergency fund, there's also a annual, uh, you know, kind of the Oscars, it's called the Nebulas, which they could vote on and participate in and also get to read and influence. And I wanted to know what you thought about that. Well, I mean, the Science Fiction Writers Association has gone through a lot of, you know, ups and downs, like any professional organization staffed by flighty weirdos. Um, and so any individual writer is going to have to decide whether it's worth their time, whether they're writing mainstream science fiction right now or not mm -hmm. to join it. I think that at the beginning of time, they looked at something like Greyhawk and they said, well, that's not fiction. That's a pretend encyclopedia. Whatever that is, it's not fiction. We write science fiction. We write stories with narrative and characters. And the fact that our characters are being, uh, you know, left open so that people can play was not something that the SFWA could sort of process. And they said, well, it's a, it's a world we know nothing about. Now, one of the interesting elements of that is to, to be a Science Fiction Writers Association member, you have to have published with a number of sales to a market that pays the Science Fiction Writers Association minimum, which is six cents a word, I think. Now, there's a lot of role-playing game companies that do not pay six cents a word. So even if you're a game designer or a game writer and you've been writing for decades, you may not have ever sold anything for six cents a word. So you're still not a science, you're still not eligible. Because the goal is to make publishers raise their rates so that they will be able to hire SFWA members, not some Johnny Schmo off the street. I don't know how successful that's been. But. Well, I mean, it, it's been relatively successful for science fiction magazines. Science fiction magazines have been, you know, cratering, but no more or less than any other fiction magazine has been. And actually, by some arguments, they're the only successful fiction magazines because they're at least still existing. Whereas, you know, go try and find a copy of Argosy. Try and look for the Saturday Evening Post. You can't do it. Um, so whether or not... Sifwa opens themselves up to the kind of weird fictiony thing that I do is kind of a question of semantics and definition. And because of my personal place in my career, 
it would be probably irrelevant to me whether or not I'm an SFWA member or not, right? I mean, you have to, you get charged dues, but you get to go to the nebulas. So maybe you call that a wash. But it's not going to open a door to me that I have not already opened. But for someone coming up, it might or it might not. And a lot of it is going to depend on whether or not the publishers respond by raising rates or whether the publishers respond by saying, well, I guess we're semi-prozines, right? Because there's a, ne there's a category in the nebula that's called semi-pro, which is under six cents, but you're still being paid. And I, there may be a minimum for that, two or three cents a word. But once you're into that, then you get best semi-prozine or best fan artist or something. And so those awards are not really relevant to the immediate question. The larger question is, does writing that you've done for a game, and not game fiction, not like if, you know, if you've published tie-in novels about Drizzt, yeah, you could be in the SFWA yesterday. There's no reason that R.A. Salvatore couldn't be in the S, and he may be already. He may be vice president, for all I know. But um, you, you could already have been there writing game tie-in fiction or game-derived fiction, but you could not have been in there for writing Greyhawk or Forgotten Realms or Knight's Black Agents. And that's sort of the question is, are pretend encyclopedias fiction, and do we care that much? And I guess, you know, I have no inside knowledge of SFWA membership allegiance and whether or not they will vote to, you know, man the barricades against the last people who are nerdier than science fiction writers, or whether they will say, yeah, it's basically writing's writing, you know, because... Many of them have now worked in gaming or worked for game uh, companies or have done game fiction or are gamers or have kids who are gamers. I mean, Mike Stackpole, for example, was a big wheel in the SFWA for a while and is a legendary game designer and game writer in our own industry. So the, the boundaries were always pretty porous. And I guess the question is, do we just open the Berlin Wall completely or not? Good question. So speaking of fictional worlds, Mm -hmm. One of the more long-standing ones that's been around has been Delta Green. Yeah. And that's a project that's coming up for you. Me and a lot of other people. Uh, right, uh, Delta Green came out in 1997 uh, as a book. It was in scenarios back to 92. And it's the covert war of the U.S. government against the Cthulhu mythos. And that, uh, that, that sort of overarching umbrella setting became the best ever Call of Cthulhu supplement. Pretty much period, end of story. Certainly the best campaign frame. And then Delta Green flourished for a while and uh, went slumbered under the ocean, and now they are relaunching it as a standalone core book that uses mechanics derived from and familiar to basic role-playing players. And they did a Kickstarter that made a zillion billion dollars, and now they're producing a number of you know, uh, books in the series uh, and they're all very busy and happy, and I'm writing some of the Case Officer's Handbook, which is the DM's guide, basically, for Delta Green. I was brought in to sort of settle fights between, you know, Greg Stoltz and Dennis Detwiller and uh, Shane Ivey, and they'd all want, have their different, the, you know, uh, you know uh, Shane wants to have a gun score that is, depending on the uh, how many bullets you loaded into the magazine before you fired it, and Greg wants the gun store to fault on how you feel about your father, is there a space between there that we can sort of make the game go forward from? That kind of philosophical stuff. And then, hey, what if we put it that? That'd be cool. So I've been sort of standing on the sidelines kibitzing, and then I'm going to write a bunch of the, of the uh, case officer's guide. And then I'm writing all, mostly all by myself. Probably we'll get other people to write the scenarios. A standalone uh, game using the gumshoe engine that powers Trail of Cthulhu and Knight's Black Agents 
called The Fall of Delta Green, which goes back to when Delta Green was an authorized part of the U.S. government and what happened to it between 1960 and 1970. So in 1970, Delta Green gets, op uh, gets involved in an operation in Cambodia that goes horribly wrong, and it causes them to be dis uh, uh, disavowed and uh, disassembled and have, have their authority taken away. And so my game is the 1960s during the U.S. government's worldwide war against the mythos, and the sort of arc behind that is what leads them to have the hubris to overreach and then destroy themselves. So that's sort of the arc behind it, but then it's also 1960s, so you get hilariously clunky tech, and you get Vietnam and Cuba and the Congo and uh, Haight-Ashbury and the Summer of Love and the Space Race and the Berlin Wall and all the great stuff that's going on in the 60s. Plus, there's an honest-to-God Lovecraftian apocalypse on the streets. Uh, in you know, When Lovecraft predicts the future in The Call of Cthulhu or in Neolithotep, it's all about, you know, how people of different races are mingling and they're playing jazz openly. It's like, well, that's pretty much the 60s, right? I mean, and so uh, Lovecraft's apocalypse is happening. And the question sort of is, is that a good sign for humanity? Or are the local good things just sort of a bubble on the waterfall as we go over the cliff? Where are horrible hidebound strictures the only thing keeping us sane? Because remember, Lovecraft says, in so many words, only ignorance is preventing us from being subsumed by the Cthulhu mythos. Well, in the 1960s, we got a lot less ignorant about some things. Was that all good? And that's sort of the question you ask, because normally you'd say, well, yeah, of course, Martin Luther King is good, and um, uh, Bull Connors is bad. That's how the world works. That's self-evident. But in a Lovecraftian universe, you're always having to say, oh, whenever someone makes progress, that's not always a good thing. Because Lovecraft is a reactionary, duh. And so the... So the, the way you pose that in, in a horror game is really interesting, and then you get to set it against this backdrop of this insane, literally, in many cases, set of historical developments. Plus, the notion that you go from the sort of buzz-cut CIA heroes with a gun fighting Cthulhu mm -hmm. to the sort of, you know, dog-tired, hollow-eyed guys in Vietnam just saying, well, maybe if we invade Cambodia, it'll fix it. <laughs> And if that's not a metaphor for America, much less, you know, certainly the American national security establishment in the 60s, I don't know what is. So we'll try and put a lot of that in as and well. And that's not the first time you've played around with Cambodia. No, it isn't. Uh, Keelong, which I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. uh, is a fantasy Cambodia uh, for uh, Lamentations of the Flame Princess. And it's not a, it's not a nice No, it's a, it's a bad thing. It's what happens to the guys next to the overarching war between two unstoppable superpowers. And just like in our real Cambodia... Whatever happens is not good. Not, not yeah. if you're at ground zero. Not, or even ground <laughs> minus two. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So what is it about Delta Green that's fascinated you over the years? Because it, it's been around for decades now. Well, yeah. It came out, in, like I say, in 97. I saw it at the time. First of all, it was, it's done by some of the greatest minds in game design ever. John Tynes, Dennis Detwiller, and uh, Adam Scott Glancy put that together with help from John Crow and some other people, and it was just light years better, light years better research, light years better written, light years more thoughtful, light years more interesting. It was a way to have a Call of Cthulhu campaign that did not depend on an endless series of dead uncles, right? No, you have a job. The reason you're investing in the mythos is it's your damn job. And no, you're not going to be paid for your job because your job doesn't exist. Your job was banned in 1970. You have to do it in secret. You are literally destroying your career and your life and your sanity by doing this. 
and it was tied in with the uh, UFO mythology that was so popular and the sort of the pop conspiracies that we all had in the 90s before it turned out we had much bigger, realer conspiracies to deal with. And so they were mingling national security, UFOs, and the Cthulhu mythos years before the X-Files came out, but it was very much part of that zeitgeist, part of that spirit of that time. And so that just, you know, I loved all of those things, and it really grabbed a hold of me there, and it was just terrifically, terrifically well-written. And then over the years, Greg Stolze got involved, and he's great, and I got involved, and I'm no slouch. And we put together some stuff that was really, really fun and really, really cool. And over the last, and the sort of the, the, the bleak and hilarious irony is, Delta Green stops publishing right, almost right before 9-11. And so we have some materials that were in the pipeline that we sort of post 9-11 a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's uh, in uh, Targets of Opportunity, there's some post 9-11 stuff. But we've got the whole Bush administration. We've got the whole Obama administration. We've never really been able to get them right in the sights and say, what is, what's the new paranoia? What's the new monstrosity? Right? We've got, you know, droning weddings and Abu Ghraib and the whole nine yards. And we haven't been able to incorporate that into the mythos and into the stories. So this this post-Obama Delta Green is going to be sort of our glancing look back and blow, but also our, well, we know that the future, we know, whatever we know about the future, it's going to be dangerous and chaotic and terrifying. And how do we face that now, even if Delta Green is once more official? Because the uh, the, the the part of the military-industrial complex that was doing dirty deals with the MIGO is still around. Mm-hmm. There's, some of them are still in the military. Some of them are private sector corporations just helping out wherever they can. So there's the world <laughs> that we face if you look at national security news or you look at uh, uh, personal liberty news or you look at you know what's going on overseas in Syria or uh, wherever is pretty awful. And... You know, it's about time there was a horror game that was literally about that. And the Cthulhu Mythos, if it's anything, it's about the ongoing apocalypse. And there certainly is an ongoing apocalypse of many different kinds happening. And it's fun to have a... Fun. It's interesting (laughs) and, I think, fun to have a game that really addresses that and sort of dives into it. And even if you're saying, well, we'll muddle through and, you know, it'll roll off our back. we got two giant oceans. Nothing really bad can happen to us. Which, historically, maybe that's the way to bet. But... We are more aware of what can go wrong, even if it won't go wrong. And we're more aware of what we've already, what price we've already paid than we ever were. And so those kind of questions are going to inform it regardless. And it's just terrifically fun. And then, like I say, as I'm helping ride them over the falls of the 21st century, I get to flash back on the last time everything was in, as entirely screwed up as it is now, which was the 1960s, and have my own sort of uh, much better soundtrack version of the same sort of story so the, the impression i'm getting is with delta green is an aspect of delta green is how it reflects cthulhu in our modern times yeah versus old school cthulhu which is kind of stuck in its little box right yeah in the 1930s or it, sometimes you don't even know there's a difference between the 1930s and the victorian version of cthulhu yeah because cars because, because <laughs> uh social mores changed less between 1890 and 1930, then they changed between 1960 and 1965, even, or certainly 1960 and 1970. So there's a there's a big sea change that happens in Western culture broadly right around the 1960s, although obviously if you're a historian, you can go back as early as the 50s and even the late 40s and start seeing parts of it pop up. I mean, the, um, uh, uh, the, the, the beatniks come out in the late 40s, early 50s. They're sort of the proto-hippies. Uh, 
in a lot of ways and the, the proto changes and you can see you know the, the cracks appearing in the soviet empire in the 40s when yugoslavia says screw you we're going our own way and mao splits off from the from uh, the soviets and so you begin to see that the world is geopolitically going to change but at uh you know at the present moment we have no idea what's going to happen and that's kind of the fun thing that that same comparison that same uh the fear unknown. of the unknown which is what lovecraft says is the first and most powerful fear that's really with us right now, and I think that that's something that a new Delta Green can do, and that the fall of Delta Green, uh, which I should reiterate will be gumshoe, compatible with Trail of Cthulhu or Knights Black Agents, um, will be able to address in a historical context. So I've noticed that, that I'm going to get into some gaming stuff now. I've noticed that gumshoe seems to be one of the, the new uh, golden children that's going around for rules. Gumshoe, Fate... Uh, apocalypse world or mm -hmm. run in apocalypse world what is it about gumshoe that really excites you to work with it well part of it is um i was able to do a version of call of cthulhu for it and call of cthulhu is the greatest role-playing game ever full stop thank you for playing here's a copy of the home game and when you know simon asked me would you like to do the gumshoe version of call of cthulhu it took me about 20 <laughs> seconds to say yes because i didn't want to look greedy um <laughs> So it just it, that was that a huge professional and personal opportunity opened up. Second of all, it's designed by Robin Laws, who is a great game designer. And the simplicity of the gumshoe insight that you don't roll for things where failing would slow the game, but you do roll for things that failing makes the game more interesting, that's very powerful. And then there's a lot of other sub-mechanics inside gumshoe, like preparedness, where you've abstracted the planning and shopping with a die roll. That's just a time saver, right? People don't necessarily have the same amount of time as they did when I was 12 to spend, you know, literally all weekend kitting out the party and planning the, the assault on the, on the La Masri or whatever. With Gumshoe, you can foreshorten a lot of that stuff. So there's a lot of really clever, I think, um, uh, sub uh, insights in it. And the other thing is that Gumshoe is specifically oriented to modeling stories the way that we read and experience them and see them on TV and in the movies in a way that a more simulationist game only does in an emergent fashion and that a more tactical game has to have imposed on it from above, right? Mm -hmm. You have to have a reason that you're in that 10 by 10 room fighting those orcs, right? And that reason has to be something the GM has established. Whereas with Gumshoe, the GM may still do all the establishing, but the structure of the adventures leads you into an experience that is more familiar to the way that we watch television and uh, if we're watching a procedural show or we watch a movie where there's like, oh, I wonder if Jason Bourne is going to be able to get out of the clutches of Treadstone this time. Or you watch Star Trek and it's like, why is this planet all, you know, Romans or whatever? How do they solve the problem of the Roman planet? And all of that problem-solving procedural media is reflected in the way that Gumshoe breaks down stories and represents stories and represents the realism of the game in a way that a lot of other games, they, they try to say, no, we're a realistic story, just like the Bourne Identity. And it's like, the Bourne Identity is not realistic at all. It looks realistic. It has a sheen, a facade of realism, but it's not realistic. It's a thriller. It's no more realistic than any James Bond novel. But it's just as, but it looks realer. And the great thing that we can do with Trail of Cthulhu is we can say, what looks real about the 30s? Well, the griminess and the racism and Joseph Stalin and the Dust Bowl, that's the, gr that's the stuff we're looking at. But behind it, it's just ticking along telling you a Lovecraft story. 
right? And letting you, or better yet, letting you co-tell a Lovecraft story, let you be part of one. Similarly, Night's Black Agents looks real because that's part of the uh, high concept, right? That, you know, you don't go up against vampires with a Holy Avenger. You go up against vampires with a Glock and you hope to God that silver bullets work, right? That's, that feels real in a way that, uh, that fantasy does not. And so Gumshoe then liberates itself from saying, well, how would real physics work? How would real uh, conspiracies work? How would real thing work? We don't care. That's not what it's about. It's about story. How would interesting conspiracies work? How would interesting guns work? How would interesting uh, clues work? And that's what Gumshoe's about. It's about advancing story, not necessarily advancing physics. And there's not, nothing wrong with a good physics engine, right? I love GURPS. I think GURPS is terrific. And you can play high fantasy with GURPS, although it's always going to have that sort of weird physicist grounding to it. But it's not the same thing as a game that literally is about how do we model narrative? How do we model procedure and answering questions and solving mysteries? And it turns out you model that differently than you model what would happen if I shot you seven times. So we've been seeing, you know, it seems like uh, RPGs swing back and forth between those two poles. Not that there's anything wrong with either way of having a good time. And again, we should, I, I, we, I, I, at least I should emphasize that when we say RPGs swing, that is talking about a tiny, tiny subset of RPGs. 90% of the games played are Dungeons & Dragons or Pathfinder, which is to say they're Dungeons & Dragons. And they don't swing at all. They've okay. always been about stabbing orcs in the face and taking their stuff, <laughs> and that's awesome, right? Yes. That's what they're about. And sometimes, onto that solid, awesome foundation, you can build realism, or you can build story, or you can build fantasy, or sense of wonder, or any number of other things that you can accomplish. But game design that isn't D&D goes back and forth. Yes. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. But, you know, when we talk about this, you know, it, it sounds like, you know, uh, uh, you're, you're mistaking this tiny fragment of the of the audience for the whole audience. And that, I think, is a real category error. If you're like, well, everyone's really talking about indie games. And it's like, no, pretty much, mathematically, no one is talking about indie games. I'm talking about indie games because they fascinate me. But that is not a signature for everyone, even everyone who games. You know, and I think that's also a little bit of our aspect of the echo chamber of the internet as well. Right, you yeah. get into the right forum, everybody's talking mm -hmm. about this or that, and mm -hmm. then it's like, well, everybody's talking about that. Yeah. It, when I do a, a, a book on, on something and I have to go into the forums of people who care, I wrote a short story about uh, Phantom of the Opera fandom. And it was a crossover of Phantom of the Opera and uh, The King in Yellow mm -hmm. for Madness on the Orient Express. The story is called um, uh, uh, La Musique de l'Ennui. And so I had to go on Phantom of the Opera fan boards to find out what Phantom of the Opera fans cared about. And I don't care about the Phantom of the Opera, the musical, the movies. I, I care a little bit about the novel because it's pretty good. But that's it. But the Phantom of the Opera fans have their own things and their own arguments and their own Gerard. But no one likes Gerard Butler. It's like Gerard Butler is a giant movie star. You know, lots of people like Gerard Butler. You don't like Gerard Butler. That's a different argument. And they have their own little, you know, this was the best... Um, uh, uh, Christina, this was the worst Christine. They have their own little uh, uh, squabbles. We have those same things. It's just that because we voluntarily spend time in them, they seem big and important to us. But I, I promise you, a fan of the opera fan who, for their sins, has to write a story about role-playing game design is going to be just <laughs> as baffled and just as lost as I was. <laughs> Don't blame you. So um, we're uh, running out of time, so I'm going to wrap up. So is there anything you want to pitch? 
Um, well, uh, go ahead and go on the Pelgrain Press site and see what you don't own already. They're all great games. Uh, my latest thing, the Dracula Dossier, just mm -hmm. came out in October. Uh, it is a improvisational campaign in the sense that there is no right answer. There is no one answer, just like how you pick what the vampires do in normal Knights Black Agents. And this mm -hmm. is you pick who is working for Dracula, who is working for the British government that's trying to corral Dracula, and who is an innocent caught in the middle. And as your players move through that story, they tell it to themselves. They pick a target. They say, we're going to go after Carfax. And you look in the book, and there are three versions of Carfax. And you pick which one you want to move them into. And so collaboratively, the GM and the players build their own Dracula dossier campaign. So you could literally play Dracula dossier two times in a row and have two entirely different experiences. And no two game groups are going to have the same Dracula dossier experience. Uh, the... And so uh, I'm really, really proud of that. It, uh, Gareth Hanrahan and myself and a bunch of people who got brought on after the Kickstarter uh, really funded well, um, put together, I think, a pretty amazing book. It's a 356-page totally improvisational campaign. Nothing like it has ever been done on that scale. If you like the Armitage Files by Robin for Trail of Cthulhu, uh, my career is I follow Robin and I do what he did. <laughs> and if I can't do it better, I try to do it louder. Um, so I, I, uh, I, I did that only with Dracula. So you get the novel Dracula, uh, which has uh, three generations worth of MI6 annotations in the unredacted version of it, the stuff that they didn't that they took out in 1894 because it revealed too much about their plans. So they put it back in uh, the edition they kept back at MI6 headquarters. They, you know, the players get that novel. They get Dracula. They get the annotations. They can follow those clues anywhere they want. The director's handbook will let you lead them anywhere they want to go. Any, any, any of the clues they pick can be uh, Dracula, they can be innocent, they can be an Edom front, or they can be something else dangerous. So it's it's pretty great, and I'm really, really stoked about it. And uh, if that if, if uh, Jason Bourne versus Dracula sounded good, this is the Dracula half. Yeah, and that I saw, I've been reading through those two books, and that's just definitely a project to be proud of. Oh, cool. Thanks, man. So thanks again, Ken. I appreciate it. No, happy to come down. Happy to be on the show. Thank you very much.